I think we have to throw in the towel and just have a contest to see how many different ways we can misspell Mary Kay Cabot's name and marketing materials. We have two so far in ads we blanketed the area with. How many more can we do? Doesn't matter how you spell her name. She did what she does best. She's the best NFL reporter in the country, and she did it again with yesterday's game. People love Mary Kay Cabot's reporting. We all do. And we're sorry we keep misspelling her name. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And I guess I was the only one who did watch the Browns game yesterday because I was curious. None of the others on the podcast did, so we can't really talk about the exciting ending. Let's get to some exciting stories. We can finally answer the question about how the Cuyahoga County Council secretly worked to create $66 million in slush funds. It took reporter Lucas Deprile reading through 45,000 pages of emails to get the answer. Layla, this is the kind of journalism that we're so proud of at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. What did he yeah, find 45, out? 45,000 pages could not deter Lucas from finding the smoking gun in this batch of correspondence between members of county council and their staff. Lucas had requested all of their emails from February 1st and June 22nd. That included uh, keywords like ARPA and rescue plan and discretionary funds. And, and his goal was to find out whether council members were indeed making plans to carve out these district-specific ARPA funds without a public discussion or a formal vote. And and it seemed that certainly they were. It first comes up in a February 8th memo from County Executive Armin Budish, who proposes at that time to Council President Purnell Jones. He suggests setting aside $85 million in these slush funds. After that, there's plenty of evidence in the email suggesting that council members had begun discussing the idea privately. And then word starts to spread among the local mayors that this money might be up for grabs. And they start sending emails inquiring about it. And then we start to see emails from council members asking council staffers to add certain projects to their ARPA lists. And they're already... (laughs) Let me me stop you for a sec, because all this is before anyone in the public really had any clue they were spending $66 million. Months before. Months before. And they're they're already at that point out meeting with mayors or leaders of their preferred nonprofits, and they've begun promising a cut of what they're calling their community grant funds. And then on March 10th, The secret agreement was first mentioned in the emails. Councilman Dale Miller, in this email to an official at a community development organization, said, quote, I'm writing to bring to your attention that Cuyahoga County will receive almost $240 million in funding through the Federal Rescue Plan Act. We have reached an informal agreement that $66 million of this money will be allocated for community development projects to be distributed about $6 million per district. So, bam. That's the smoking All right. gun. All right. So, so so let's stop. There's more, but let's stop there and talk about what the Sunshine Law is about. The the any elected body is supposed to conduct its business in public. They have rare exceptions where they can go behind closed doors, talk about real estate exactly. sales and some personnel matters. But when you are mapping out how you're going to spend $66 million, even though you have to vote on the spending later. You're supposed to do it in public. That's why we have a sunshine law. They keep trying to 
to try and say, well, we're following the letter of the law because we vote on it. But that's horse hockey. This is just like the budgeting process. They meet in public to draft the county budget. Lots of hearings, right? That sets up the spending plan for individual contracts later that all come back for a second vote. What they're doing here is skipping the first part entirely and trying to claim that they're following the law. They're not following the law because we talked to the expert on the Ohio Sunshine Law, literally the guy who wrote the book on the Sunshine Law, Dave Marburger, and he threw the flag and said, nope, nope, nope. You are violating the Sunshine Law. He did. Law. Dave Marburger says that what council did is totally in violation of the Sunshine Law, which requires all agreements and decisions of local legislative bodies to be adopted during public meetings. And he says that they're also in violation of the provision of the county's charter that says council can't take any action without formally passing legislation. So basically, he's saying that any expense that they approve out of these slush funds is invalid and unlawful because they all stem from an agreement that was never approved by a formal council vote. So the interesting take there. Well, and we're talking about the letter of the law, which they're in violation of. They are violating the Sunshine Law. But it, but it's beyond that. They are supposed to be public servants. They should be doing this in the spirit of the law. If you want to create $66 million in slush funds, bring it up at a public meeting. Let the public talk about that. Maybe they might have ideas for how to better set up a program. What's troubling is, and I'm sure you're about to get into this, Dale Miller knew this was playing with the charter. What did he say in an email about that? I mean, that? you know, Miller defended the program when he talked to Lucas. He said he didn't think council was violating the Sunshine Law, or that the charter were by, you know, by developing it outside of a public meeting. He said that those kinds of ex parte conversations are all part of the normal way the sausage is made. It's not unlike the way they decide upon the budget. So he was pretty defensive about that. But he had an email where he talked about how close it came in his mind oh, to oh, violating yes. the charter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, D- Dale Miller had said um, this was all in uh, back when uh, Lee Weingart had raised concerns about uh, the 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 way that this the way this was formulated and and potentially violated the county charter. In response to that, Dale Miller had said, "You know, this is too. This comes too close." for my comfort to violating the charter. And that was in the stack of emails that that Lucas had reviewed. And so he said to make that better, he's going to put together a formal application process and he hoped others would follow it. Here's the other thing. Back, this all erupted when the Rape Crisis Center came out and said, you know, we've been trying to get our name in for some of this money and we can't get in. And, and, Council people like Gallagher came forward and said they never really applied. Well, what did the email show about how confused everybody in the public was when they started to hear about this, about how to apply? Oh, yeah. We see in the emails, nonprofit heads start to reach out with questions about how they can be considered for funding and and they're getting the runaround left and right. The Rape Crisis Center was one of those. There was no uniformity in the application process. So there's tons of confusion. At one point, the Highland Heights Public Safety Director emails to say he was told that each city may be getting a million dollars. And he asked if that was true. Nope. <laughs> Not true. So, uh, but, but this gets at the idea that they created $66 million in slush funds to give it to the favored exactly. few. Exactly. They went out to the favored few and said, hey, I want to take care of you. This is 
absolutely not what the people wanted when they changed their government charter. They were trying to get away from these backroom dirty deals. We have no idea what what transpires when they have private conversations with their favored few to give them $66 million instead of doing it in the sunshine, which the law requires. This is a tremendous piece of reporting by Lucas Duprile. Everybody who cares about Cuyahoga County government should read this. And we should be talking you, about a charter you know, change I, again I, to erase this I wanted body. to say, I thought it was very telling. At one point, Councilman Dale Miller, who, who seemed to be trying really hard to infuse some kind of transparency into this process, process, suggested that council should post the funding application on their website so it's easier to find. And a county staffer responded by saying, I don't think other council members want it open like that. <laughs> no, because they want to give it to their pals and their favored few. This is the just absolutely wrong. It took us months to get it. They blanketed Lucas with that many documents, probably betting we wouldn't take the time, but we did. We said, Lucas, take all the time you need. There is gold in them there, haystacks. Go get it. He did. It's great stuff. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. So what do we know a week after a wolf escaped its enclosure in the Metro Park Zoo? And what do we know about the standards for containing animals of varying danger to the public? Laura, this wolf is going to rewrite the books. Yeah, this four-year-old named Sara, uh, she's going to make everybody re-examine their rules because she apparently climbed a nylon-coated chain-link mesh fence, chewed her way through a connection between the fencing and the mesh lid that topped this holding area and got out. And that wasn't even like over a long period of time. They hadn't even been in this holding pen very long and they were following all the rules. They followed the rules with the AZA standards. They were properly maintained. They looked at it every day, but the wolf acted in this way that wasn't expected. Nobody thought that that was a possibility. So the AZA is Maryland based. They have 238 members, obviously. That's the um, the zoo association. And they're probably going to have to look and see what else they could do to make sure that these wolves are may, are contained because the wolf got out and stood in a public path for like five minutes, had to be tranquilized and brought back. Thankfully, no one was hurt. You know, it, it does. The zoos have great records of containing animals. They very rarely get out. But when they say, oh, we didn't know they could do that. You start to worry about the lions and the cougars and other nice. animals. Like, what do you know they could do? You also kind of feel bad for this wolf, right? I mean, if it wants its freedom so badly, it's willing to be this enterprising. <laughs> don't you think you ought to release it back into the wild? She's breaking the mesh ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Pete's story, Pete Krause's story is very interesting and in that it obviously I, I never studied this. Right. So as a casual zoo observer, things I, I didn't realize about the placement of trees and making sure they're not too close to like the the sides of the enclosure because you could use a tree to escape. Apparently, there was a red panda at the uh, Smithsonian Zoo a couple years ago that escaped. And that was because the vegetation was wet and so behaved in a way that they didn't account for when they designed it, right? Like just things you don't think about and all the engineering that both for natural 
you know, living things and for the man-made structures that you have to think about. So for the AZA manual on large canids, which wolves are a part of, says all mesh fencing should be checked for gaps or stretching at the bar attachment. Extra precautions should be taken if there's any compromised fencing. Um, And so all of that was followed. Now, I want to just make clear, this is in a holding pen. This is not part of the regular wolf lodge area. That has a different enclosure. So we're not worried that they're going to chew their way out of that one yet. Yeah, I don't know. And we didn't know they could do that. That's the troubling troubling part of it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Did Ohio get its bipartisan kumbaya moment when politicians of all stripes gathered to officially welcome Intel and its enormous microchip plant to the state? Lisa, we finally saw the ceremonial groundbreaking. Yes, everybody singing and holding hands. Well, not quite. But anyway, the uh, groundbreaking bear, uh, ceremony in New Albany on Friday for the $20 billion Intel factory drew all sorts of politicians. Of course, President Joe Biden was there. That was his fourth visit to Ohio this year. We also had both Ohio senators, Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman, uh, the governor and first lady, Mike and Fran DeWine, uh, U.S. Representative Joyce Beatty, the Democrat from Columbus, and Lieutenant Governor John Husted, not in uh, in uh, at present was uh, Jim Jordan. You'd think he would go. Uh, also, neither of our Senate candidates who are trying to replace Rob Portman were there, J.D. Vance or Tim Ryan. So yeah, it was it was good to see. You know, President Biden said the future of the chip industry will be made in America. I love what uh, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger said. He said the Rust Belt is dead. The Silicon Heartland begins. I really like that. Yeah, and it was a good moment. It's a celebratory mood for Ohio, a modern industry showing up in a big way in the state. I'm a little bit surprised Tim Ryan didn't go. He would have standing as an Ohio congressman to be there. J.D. Vance, just a candidate, so he wouldn't have. Uh, but Tim Ryan has kept his distance from Joe Biden most of the times he has come here. So it's, I guess that's why. Speaking of Intel, how much is it providing to state colleges to train the workforce it will need to staff that huge facility that it's building? Lisa, this is a big amount of money. Well, and it's exciting how they're spreading it around, too. I mean, there's going to be $50 million over the next 10 years that will go to Ohio higher education institutions. Intel hopes that the first round of funding will produce 9,000 graduates and 2,300 scholarships for the jobs of the future. So $17.7 million is going to Kent State, Lorraine County Community College, and five others over three years to help train and educate workers on virtual and augmented reality training programs. Lots of colleges joining in on this, Baldwin Wallace, uh, Tri-C, John Carroll University, and then there's, um, <clears throat> excuse me, what's called the Ohio Semiconductor Workforce Consortium of Northeast Ohio. That will be le- led by Lorraine Tri-C with 10 schools. They'll be training in robotics, automation, microelectronics, and processing. But there are several other schools and projects, and they're really looking at equity here. Like there's uh, there's an Appalachian um 
where is it? The uh, at Ohio University, the Appalachian Semiconductor Education and Tech Ecosystem. They want to recruit underrepresented students for technical jobs, entry level engineers, advanced degree graduates for work at Intel and other companies. And uh, another one, the Ohio Partnership for Diverse and Inclusive Semiconductor Ecosystem and Workforce, is providing programs for entry level engineers, techs, and augmented and VR training. So it really looks like they're trying to get everybody in on this. It's so smart. It, it's just, They need a big workforce. They're going to need a lot of people to be well-trained. So going to where they're going to get the trained workforce guarantees that you are spreading this around. It's not just the haves. Lots of people will have the chance to get a good paying job at this factory if they go through these different schools. And you're right. It was spread far and wide. This is not the Ohio State University microchip school. It's going to lots of, of schools where, where they're affordable that or more affordable, I should say. Nothing's affordable today, but good <laughs> right. stuff. Yeah, and there are, there are dozens of schools. I mean, a lot of these, like Kent State and Ohio State, are the lead, but they're collaborating with up to a dozen or more of their institutions to get this done. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. This next one is evidence that we are becoming the land of the Looney Tunes. What's behind the bombardment of elections offices all over Ohio and the nation of records requests for records too voluminous to put together? This is amazing that the elections offices are getting hit with this, Layla. They all read the same and they all want everything. Yeah, and I'll tell you who's behind it. It's the MyPillow guy and some crazy podcaster who's trying to run for Ohio Secretary of State. Both of these wackadoos have persuaded people to pull this stunt in the name of the, the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. So what's happening is that the boards of elections are getting blasted with requests for just about all of the records related to the 2020 presidential election, including copies of all ballots, poll books, voting machine reports, and absentee ballot identification envelopes, and all these other records that would total thousands of documents. And in some cases, it would actually cost the person requesting this stuff in the six figures to have the boards produce these these pages because of how labor intensive the work is. So boards of elections would have to hire more people to comply with all of these requests. And based on the timing of this deluge of identically worded requests, it seems that the purpose is to prevent the elections boards from discarding those records. Federal law requires local elections officers to retain congressional and presidential election materials for 22 months after ballots are cast. Discarding the old records is pretty routine for local boards of elections, uh, which in, in many Ohio counties have limited space to warehouse documents and, and have to make room for records from the 22 uh, 2022 midterm election. But as long as these records requests are pending, they have to find a way to keep those 2020 records around. And it's not easy because they can't just put them in a, in a storage facility because ballots are considered sacrosanct. They have to be secured under double lock and key with a surveillance camera. So this is just a total pain in the neck but, for boards of elections. Thanks a lot, my pillow uh, guy. <laughs> Uh, but in Ohio, Donald Trump won. So what is the point of doing this in Ohio? He won by, what, seven or eight points. There's no question. You know, the, the election deniers have not looked at Ohio at all because they're happy he won. Election deniers, either Trump won or it's fixed, right? It's that ridiculous kind of logic they have. 
But why would you do this in Ohio? I mean, the only thing that could happen is if you really look at them closely, that it would exactly. hurt them. I mean, I just, well, it doesn't make one sense. One election technology and security consultant surmised that these folks are actually trying to create problems for boards of elections just in time for the midterm so that they can say, see, we told you there were voting problems, you know, just to kind of gum up the system right at this moment. So... So irritating. So what are they, what what are they going to do? I guess this isn't resolved yet. I would think they could just deny it. Say this is we get this. If you if you seek records that are too voluminous under Ohio law, they could turn you down and say you need to make this bite sized. So you could. So what yet we end up having to do is put in a records request for one section of the records and then put in a records request for another to make it manageable. You're not allowed to make overbroad requests. This would seem to me to be the definition of overbroad. So they should be able to deny them. And then yeah. after they deny them, destroy all the records and move on. This is crazy. Well, this is what the election deniers are so, about. It's just, who, who buys into this? It's Some looms. of the boards are saying that, you know, they, they're telling the people who they're telling the requesters exactly how much it's going to cost them to have their, their records fulfilled. And then the requesters are kind of ghosting them after that. <laughs> they're either withdrawing the request it. or they're just never responding again. And that's making making these evaporate pretty quickly because if it's going to cost you six figures, I think you're, the statement you're trying to make is just not worth it. <laughs> Well, and they ought to give them a date. Okay, this is going to cost you $150,000. You have until Friday to pay it or we're denying right. your request. They, they've got to move on. This is going to cost taxpayers a bundle of money to preserve this stuff under lock and key. And it's completely bogus. This is, yeah, look, you, you would think that Dave Yost would investigate this as a harassment kind of crime. When everybody is using an identical records request, this isn't about getting yeah. the records. This is about harassment. And that that is a criminal offense. And maybe that's the way they should go. Great story by Sabrina really was, Eaton. Yeah. Uh, it's really kind <laughs> of a, one that I'd never expected to see. It's Today in Ohio. How did some payday lending companies appear to try to skirt Ohio's payday lending rules that went into effect a few years back? Laura, this is a Laura Hancock story that is disturbing about how these these payday lending firms tried to jam people, even though the regulations had changed to stop them from doing so. Yes, absolutely. And, the, and how a judge put it is basically there's a very convoluted process that masquerades as a very simple transaction. So there are 34 similar complaints to Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost just in 2019 and 2020 that paint the similar picture. People thought they received payday loans. They actually had obtained lines of credit in amounts far greater than they wanted to borrow the money for. So even if they paid off the original loans, they were still on the hook for fees to keep open this line of credit they never wanted and for interest on that larger loan. There's a $1,000 threshold as a payday loan it, that would be under it. So that these numbers just push just above $1,000 so they're not required to follow the law that was meant to protect these people in the first place because the payments just balloon. So do you, uh, the, the big fight through the reforms was in 2018. There was a bill capping interest rates at 28%, which is still mind-boggling. Um, it went into effect in April 2019, and at least one lender started providing loans the very next day in a workaround. So the thing is, Yost has gotten all these complaints. It doesn't seem like he's in a hurry to investigate them or get to the bottom of how people are being taken advantage of. 
Yeah, I was a little bit surprised because his consumer affairs unit has been pretty aggressive when Ohioans are being scammed. Uh, and I wondered why. And he, of course, we couldn't get a comment either from the usually verbose Dave Yost. So. <laughs> he didn't send a press release about this one. <laughs> yeah, hopefully he'll come through and explain to Laura Hancock why he is or isn't taking on these cases. Yeah, it seems yeah. like it's a clear wrong. And it has to do with the Columbus, like, I don't know where it's based, but Check Smart. But they also partner with this group called Green Bear. And the way they work together is basically to fleece customers. So it's... um. It's very complicated and people don't realize what they're getting into. And the whole point of the law was to protect Ohioans from this predatory. Although it's done. They stopped doing it, right? A couple of years ago. They realized probably how deeply over their head they were and they they cut the practice. So we're we're seeing the residuals of of the misbehavior from years ago coming through the courts now. It's Today in Ohio. The attacks from the far right just keep coming in Ohio. Mike DeWine faced two of them in his primary run for re-election. They failed. The latest was a bid to oust Bob Paduchik as the state's Republican Party chair. Lisa, how did that go on Friday? Well, Bob Paduchik is still on top after that Friday meeting of the State Central Committee of the Ohio GOP. They decided, though, to delay any vote or anything until January. So, you know, he still may be in trouble, but at least he'll be around until January and through the November election because they were trying to get rid of him before the November election. Vice Chair Brian Williams attempted to boot Paduchik over his, you know, he said what he called leadership issues. And of course, this all kind of boils down to the DeWine endorsement, which was very contentious. The committee voted 36 to 26 to endorse him, so he only got the endorsement by 10 votes. Uh, Paduchik ended a December 2021 meeting when anti-DeWine members got really rowdy and refused to leave the meeting. So that's where the controversy kind of got started. But uh, members are worrying that big-time donors are being turned off by all this internal squabbling, and they say that new members who who were just you know, instated, you know, just in the last couple of months, shouldn't have to serve time under somebody they didn't choose, which is such a ridiculous argument. But when Paduchik apparently had the votes at this Friday meeting to remain, the opponents tried to adjourn the meeting, but they got voted down 44 to 20. And Paduchik says, well, you know, this is just part of the cost of doing business. So he's safe for now, but it sounds like they might take it up again next year. Well, it's a battle for the soul of the party. The the fringe people on the far right are trying to take control of it, and a whole bunch of people that are closer to the center are resisting it. We introduced a new con- conservative but closer to the center column this last week, former Solon Bear Rob Paulson. He said, I'll be writing a monthly column, and this is what I stand for. And the reaction we got from people that are sick of what's happened to their party, the the tiny minority of loons that have dragged it to the far right are very supportive of what Paulson had to say. It'll be interesting to see if they can take control back of their party, if they can keep the Jim Renaces and the others that want to drag it to the Trumpiest of Trumpness, that they can fight that back. Interesting, interesting battle, and Bob Paduchik still reigns. It's today in Ohio. What's the median rent in greater Cleveland these days, and what do you get for it, Layla? 
Well, real estate reporter Megan Sims found that the median rent here is $1,050, which runs about $1,000 below the national median, according to the rental tracking website Dwellsy. That's after a 1.4% increase in local rents last year, but compare that to a 31% spike nationally. So we're, I guess we're doing okay in Greater Cleveland could be a whole lot worse. But what does that get you is the question. And it kind of depends on what you're in the market for. If you're trying to live downtown, $1,050 is is going to get you considerably less square footage than if you're looking to spread out in the suburbs. So Megan took a look at some listings and found that in the $1,000 to $1,200 range, you can get a a one-bedroom, one-bath unit measuring 593 square feet in a 16-story luxury apartment building near Playhouse Square in Euclid. You can get a couple hundred extra square feet in apartments on East 4th Street or Ontario downtown. Or in Ohio City, for that price, you can get a pretty nice two-bedroom, one-bath, 850-square-foot unit in a duplex. Tremont, on the other hand, seems to be a slightly hotter market. There you can get a studio, one-bath, 461-square-foot unit. But then out in Cleveland Heights... You can find a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment measuring 1,100 square feet in a two-story duplex. Or there are just a wide range of options on Coventry, Mayfield Road, or or the streets surrounding that neighborhood. And then you can go all the way out to Parma, and and you're looking at over 1,000 square feet in in a two-bedroom, one-bath, two-story duplex. But I think Lakewood, for me, kind of won the disappointment of the day because in that price range that we're talking about, you can get what they say is a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment measuring 454 square feet (laughs) in a three-story brick building. I mean, please. First of all, I've never seen a two-bedroom unit that small anywhere. No. And also 454 square feet for 1200 bucks a month. What is this? New York City? No. So... I mean, that's almost like a, a you know, a, a large hotel. Yeah. Room. I mean, I, it's hard to it's hard to imagine that you would pay that much money for that little space. Um, but that that's what happens when there's high demand. People want to live in Lakewood. Man, I was just so disappointed to see that. I mean, I spent five years living in Lakewood. I loved living there, but that seems really like you're gouging people. And and I cannot believe that you can carve up 450 square feet into two bedrooms. Two bedrooms, yeah. I, I had an 800-square-foot condo with one bedroom, and I'm telling you, I don't know where I would have sque- yeah. squeezed another <laughs> Can you imagine having a roommate in that tiny space? Uh, oh, my goodness. But no. Megan's story you know, had great comparisons between communities east and west. I thought this was some valuable reporting here. Yeah, we talk we talk in general about rents and home prices, but this gave you a very visual kind of feel for what exactly people are getting. It's a it's a good piece. And it's on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio and we're done for a Monday. Thank you Lisa, thank you Laura, thank you Layla, and thank you everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>